it's here today that we um, are at the end of our series on uh, the life of Abraham, and uh, I wanted to bring it into a bigger context. And as I was thinking about that, I was reading a commentary on Second Samuel of all things, and uh, in the introduction to that particular commentary, there was a small description, I think, of what just made the penny drop for me of what I've been trying to do as we've been working our way through the book of Abraham. And it's how I hoped we have been viewing these last 14 chapters of uh, the book of Genesis as we've been going through them week after week. Here's what this particular individual wrote. He said, Second Samuel is not about David. If you think it is, you will not understand it. I get worried when somebody says to me, e.g. after an exposition of 2 Samuel, Oh, I just love everything about David. I understand, and yet I cringe. The church seemingly cannot divorce herself from this People magazine approach to biblical narrative. Again and again, as we read 2 Samuel, we have to shake ourselves and say, This is not about David. It is not about even covenant kings. It is about a covenant God who makes covenant promises to a covenant king through who he will preserve his covenant people. That must be our perspective. And the same is true when we consider Genesis chapter 11 verse 27 to Genesis chapter 25 verse 18. These chapters have not been about Abraham. Rather, they have been about a covenant God who made covenant promises to our covenant father through whom he would bring about a covenant people and give them a covenant land. This has to be our perspective increasingly as we come to the Bible. It's the main interpretive grip through which we make sense of the Bible. This is God's story, not our story. And when we get in the way of it, we lose sight of what God is doing in his world. And so when we come to the Bible, we ought to ask ourselves questions along the lines of, well, what is God telling me about himself? What is God doing here? What is God promising? How is God keeping his promises? In fact, that is the lens through which we are to make sense of the world in which we live and the people in the world. We'll not always have the answer to those questions. We'll not always know why God is doing what he's doing or what God is about when he's doing what he's doing. We can ask him to show us what he is about and why he is doing it. But in the end, we might not have the answers. All we ought to know is that our lives are bound up in the story of God, not the other way around. And my story is simply one of the chapters in God's great story that involves all of humanity. And I cannot, therefore, make sense of my life unless I understand God, who is over all of life. And so that's, same, uh, that's the same thing that is true of Abraham's story. And when we come to these last few uh, verses about Abraham, his obituary and this, um, this genealogy, is there anything in these odds and ends that we can learn about God? Do we just read these sorts of things and they just kind of go off of our lips or in one ear or out the other ear? Do these have anything to do with God's story? I think many of us would quickly say, well, a genealogy doesn't really tell me much about God. And the last few lines of somebody's life, well, really, it's just to tell us that he lived and that he's died. And that's going to happen to all of us. The fact is, sometime in the days ahead, for every single one of us, it will be written or said of us, they died. And the story of our life will be wrapped up. 
Is there anything that we can see when that day comes of the hand of God in our lives? Before we get to some of those things, there's a couple introductory things that we have to tackle about these texts because I'm sure as my mind went to these things, your mind has gone to them as well. These matters that are raised in the first six verses. The first and most obvious one is Keturah. It's as though a secret in Abraham's life has now been exposed in his death. And what we realize, though, is it's really not been a well-kept secret. For there are 16 witnesses to Keturah's existence. 16 names that can trace their lineage back from Abraham to Keturah. They are part of his story. They were all provided for by Abraham out of his excess. He gave them gifts and he sent them off to the east. Isaac alone and Isaac only would inherit Abraham's possessions. But then we read of the fact that he had concubines. And I'm sure that what that is referring to is he only had two. One was Keturah, who was a concubine wife, and the other was Hagar, whom we're already familiar with. So we ask ourselves, well, when did Keturah show up on the scene? Well, it's reasonable, I think, to presume that she did so before the death of Sarah. In fact, likely quite some time before the death of Sarah. Because after all, when Isaac was born, we read comments in various ways that he was no spring chicken. In fact, upon the news that a son was to be born to Sarah and himself, he fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? His faith in the promise of a son through Sarah is noted in scripture. A little bit later it says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. And then Sarah herself marvels at the fact that she, was born, that she had born Abraham a son in his own age. And so most of these texts, or all of these texts, suggest very clearly that his virility was long since dead by the time he was a hundred years old. So it makes sense that Abraham took Keturah as a concubine earlier in his life. But then I can hear the question from some, well, what about marriage? I thought it was one man and one woman. I know that. But do we ever allow culture, rather than the word of God, to direct our practices? Apparently we do. If you read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, you'll find there Paul's appeal to the brothers there. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and purpose or perfect. So the question I ask is, is not the battle of our lives a battle to resist conformity to the world? And in resisting conformity to the world, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God. And are we able to say in every way, that our lives conform to the word of God and not to the way of the world. So with those sort of introductory matters to the side, 
regarding Abraham and Keturah and her children. Let's dive into some of the things that then are written about Abraham. The first thing that I note is simply this. So much more than first meets the eye is uncovered as we dig a little bit deeper into these verses in Genesis chapter 25. And I might ask you, so where do you see God in these verses? If you were to read this obituary now and this genealogy, where do you see God in this? What evidence is there that God is concerned about mundane details of our life or that God is in the details of an obituary or of a genealogy? Well, it does take a little bit of digging and of prodding, but there is considerable evidence of God's faithfulness. First of all, the fact that Abraham lived to 175 years. Now that's pretty old, especially when initially we realized that 35 years earlier, it says that Abraham was old and advanced in years, and he thought, I probably don't have much left to live, so I better get a wife for my son Isaac. So he lived another 35 years past that, and living to an old age was seen as a blessing of God. But this is more than God's blessing. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Early on in Abraham's life, when he was wandering into Canaan, God reaffirmed his promise to him of the land and of descendants. And he reminded him, though, that this promise would take hundreds of years to work itself out. So the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and will be affected for 400 years, or afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And then he left Abraham with this promise. As for you, you shall go the way of your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a ripe old age. You see, there is God being true to his word. Here is evidence that God keeps his promises. In spite of all the dangers that lay ahead for Abraham, he lived to be a good old age because of the promise of God upon his life. Secondly, we might note in the obituary where it says, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. We say, so what? It's just a cave. And I realize that a cave for Abraham, particularly where his wife Sarah was buried, can be a really important thing. But other than that, it's really no big deal. You can read about him getting the cave in Genesis chapter 23. You say, well, what's this got to do with anything? It's just a throwaway comment in his obituary. Well, this is the beginning of God's promise of a place or of a land. Abraham owned a piece of Canaan When he died, he had bought it fair and square. God had not failed Abraham. God had given him the first few meters of the land of Canaan. True to his word, God was keeping his promise to give him the land. And so we see another mark of the faithfulness of God to Abraham in his obituary. And then there's there's the mention of Bear Lahoiroi. This is where Isaac settled after his father's death. You might remember that it was given that name by Hagar. She had run away from Sarah, and the angel of the Lord found her at this spring of water. The angel said to her, Surely I will multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. 
The angel told her about her son, what to name him and what he would be like. And after this encounter, we read, So she called the name of the Lord there and spoke, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore this well was called Ber Lahoi Roy. It's not by accident, I think, that this is where Isaac settled because there he was reminded of, of why his stepmother had named it this way. It was a recognition, a reminder of God's favor and God's love and God's provision and God's care. Oh, it might be just a name, but that name spoke volumes about the faithfulness of God and the care of God. And then finally, what about verses 11 to 18? We, we only read the first couple of those and we didn't read the rest, but there's a whole list of names there. The genealogy of Ishmael, so to speak. And again, these names tell us about a God who keeps his word. Here is what the promise at the well, Berlahoy Roy, looked like some 90 years later. This is how we see God is at work. This is where we see the evidence of God's faithfulness. This is the working out of God's promise to Abraham concerning Ishmael. Where earlier he says, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. And will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princesses, princes, and I will make him into a great nation. You see, what we have here is the record of the beginning of the, that great nation that God had promised to give Abraham. To Hagar, as she was driven out of Abraham's care. The angel of the Lord said to her, Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. So here again, we see evidence of the faithfulness of God in these words of an obituary and a genealogy. In the words of Psalm 23, verse 6, come to mind, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Loved ones, as I reflect on that, there is so much more going on in your life and in my life than meets the eye. What is true in, in these verses, Genesis, of, of Genesis 25, is true of your life and my life. We could all sit down this afternoon and start digging up what we might think are mundane details of our life. A move here, a name there, a visit there, a journey here. And if we dug a little, we would find there evidence of God's promises, evidence of God's faithfulness, evidence of God's care and protection and provision for our life, evidence that God has not left us alone. Sometimes we just need to look a little bit. We need to recall a little bit. We need to dig around a little bit and we will see evidence of the glory of God everywhere in our life. The second comment that I make from this obituary is simply this, when breath becomes air. These verses are the kind of summary that you might find in the Times Colonist. If you read the obituary notices, I've already pointed out a few phrases of interest there, but there's a few more phrases that I find interesting that I just want to make a couple comments on. Two caught my mind. The first was simply this. Abraham breathed his last and died. Abraham breathed his last and died. These are really sobering words. Some of us are more comfortable 
hearing those words and even speaking those words than others. Regardless of our comfort level, though, unless the Lord returns soon, they are words which will be said or left unsaid about each one of us in our obituaries. Paul breathed his last and died. Simply and profoundly, taken from probably the favorite book that I read in 2019, the title of it was When Breath Becomes Air. There will be a time when my breath will cease and it will only become air. No one gets out of life alive. Right now, we're living in a culture obsessed with death. For the last year, it's been a daily presence. You'd be hard-pressed to turn on a news broadcast of any sort on any day and not hear death statistics. Consequently, we have a world paralyzed by the prospect of their death like never before. The world is living in an induced state of fear that their death is imminent because of a virus. And this reality of death that has gripped the world has not gripped it in a good way. And while death is, like, is before us like it has never been before us ever, the truth about death, I believe, is being covered up. And let me explain why. COVID may be the cause of your death, but it's not the reason of your death. Oh, it might be the reason that is listed on your death certificate or the cause lifted on your death certificate, but it is not the reason for your death. And in fact, COVID is not the only cause that people die from. People continue to die from heart attacks and cancer and suicide and drug overdoses, and natural causes, and car accidents, and falls, and wars, and famines. Again, these things may be the cause of our death, but they are not the reason that we die. There is a reason why we all die, but it is never listed on any one of our death certificates, ever. And so why do people die? Why will you die? Why will I die? I'm not asking what will you die of or what do people die of, but I'm asking why do people die? And the answer is simple. That's why I asked Andrew to read Romans chapter 5. The reason that we die is because of sin. Sin that entered the world through Adam and sin that we ourselves have committed. You will never hear this on CNN. You have to go to the Word of God to find out the reason of death. He died. To say this is not simply to say a fact, but to explain it. Because human death in the Scriptures is never a meaningless phenomenon. On the contrary, death is always a fact of theological significance. The dreadful penalty of human sin. 
From the second chapter of Genesis, where God says to Adam, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall die, to the penultimate chapter in Revelation, in which impenitent sinners die the second death, the same theme is constantly emphasized. The wages of sin is death. It's the judgment of God upon the disobedience of men and women. But it's also the mercy of God that he brings our sinning to an end. Just pick one of the people that you think is the worst people you know in history and consider them living forever and ever and ever. There's a sense that death is a mercy of God as much as it is a judgment of God. So again, why is this important? Why am I taking a couple minutes to talk about this? It's important because when it comes to death, we need to deal not with the cause of our death, but with the reason of our death. In other words, a vaccine will not save you. And I wish there was the same energy and anticipation and hunger and thirst for a vaccine or for Christ as there is for a vaccine. I'm astounded by what I hear in the news and read of the lengths that people will go to procure the vaccine for themselves. Only to realize that they may be vaccinated from COVID, but they will still die in three years or six years or 20 years. Because a vaccine will not save them from death. Only Christ can save you from death. The only cure for death is Jesus Christ. Since Jesus had no sin either in his nature or in his conduct, he need never have died either physically or spiritually, but he voluntarily laid down his life. Why did he do that? What was the rationale behind his death? Well, there's only one possible logical, biblical answer. He died for our sins, not his own. The death that he died was our death, was your death, was my death, the penalty of which our sins fully deserved. For these sins he died, not only in body but in soul, to hear the awful words of God to him, or as he spoke to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the evidence of the fact that Jesus was perfect and sinless and that he died in our places everywhere throughout the scriptures. Jesus alone takes the sting out of death. He alone deals with the penultimate cause of our death, sin. He alone offers deliverance from death when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Are you ready for the day when your breath becomes air. The only way any of us will be ready for that day is if our lives are hidden and secured in Christ Jesus and Jesus alone. The only way that any of us will be saved from our death is to know that Christ's sacrifice and substitute for me was sufficient. And that as I put my trust in him, he takes away the sting of death and gives me everlasting life. 
The second phrase that I found fascinating in this was it simply says that Abraham died and breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. It may not be much, but again, there's considerable encouragement there. We say, why does it matter what happened to Abraham when he died? Does this speak to the question of what happens when we die, or more specifically, does it speak to the question of what happened to Abraham and maybe even other Old Testament saints when they died? What do you think happened to Abraham when he died? Where did he go? Did he go anywhere? Well, it helps to unpack this phrase just a little bit. This phrase, was gathered up to his people, is not a common phrase. It's it's used, though, mostly oh, all the times I could find in the Pentateuch. It's used of Ishmael, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Aaron, and of Moses. And it's differentiated from them being buried. Because we read of Abraham that when he died, he was gathered to his people, but then they took him and buried him in the cave of Michpeth. So it's not the, it's not the same thing that's being spoken of here. What it implies is that his people continue to exist. Even though they're physically death, in some way, they continue to exist beyond death. I understand speculation can be misleading. But the clause does allow us, I believe, very clearly to conclude that death is not the end. That is, annihilation does not follow your death or my death. When you die, you do not cease to exist. You will be gathered to your people, either in Sheol or in heaven. Let's think about this just for a couple of moments. Think about Enoch. We learn about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 in a section of scripture where the final word of every individual in chapter 5 is, they lived, they lived this long, they had this many children, and then they died. Again and again and again. The phrase is a reminder that death follows all of us. But tucked in that list of people and their deaths is this note about Enoch. All the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Well, it begs the question, where did God take him? Three things are clear. Enoch did not die, Enoch's body was not found, and Enoch was taken up. Then we might recall Elijah. You can read the whole account of his, his uh, disappearance in 2 Kings chapter 2, but it begins this way. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven, that's that's. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. Stop there just for a minute. Where do you think he was taken? I know it's an obvious question. Where was Elijah taken? Where did he go? What are we to think about life after death? Well, the summary account of Elijah is found in verse 11 of chapter 2 in 2 Kings. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So both of these accounts, Elijah and Enoch, tell us that life exists after death. Both of these accounts, one by implication and one, by, one explicitly, tells us they went up to heaven. 
Then, of course, there are other references that we could read in Scripture. I've already referenced Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and follow, uh, mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then what? I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Asaph writes these words in Psalm 73. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me into glory whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. And then we have the witnesses of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, who describe the present day Lord's Day gatherings. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when we gather together, when you're gathering in your home right now, worshiping the Lord, and people all around the world have gathered on the Lord's Day, you know that there's also a heavenly gathering of God's people. We do not worship alone. And this is what we read in Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That phrase was such an encouragement to me and continues to be. That's what he said, the spirits of the righteous. What about, well, they continue to live on. They don't just go out of existence. They continue to live on. The spirits of the righteous are now in heaven with God. But then notice what it says, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Oh, wonderful day, the day of my death. Because on that day, my spirit will be made perfect. Now I understand, I really do, that Genesis 25.8 is nothing like, I don't know, say 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because you and I know things that the Old Testament saints never knew. We know them, though, because of progressive revelation, because God, over thousands of years, has revealed more and more of his truth, more and more about life on earth, more and more about life after death. But the unfolding mysteries of God over time does not mean that the experience of the saints in the Old Testament was anything less than that. Just because they did not know what life after death was like does not mean that they did not experience exactly what you and I will experience when we die. They might not have had a precise understanding of what happened after death, but this does not mean that, that, that their experience was not greater than their understanding. The fact that they did not understand where they were going, per se, after death, does not mean that they did not get there. Loved ones, there is a great deal more that can be said about what happens after we die than is said in Genesis chapter 25, verse 8. But there is enough there for us to rejoice if that's all that we had. He was gathered to his people. Oh, glorious reunion. Loved ones, we who are in Christ need not fear death. For when we die, we will be gathered to our people. And then finally, one last comment from Genesis chapter 25, verse 11. 
after the death of Abraham, let's just stop there just for a moment. I don't know if you realize that the Bible really does use an economy of words. And because it does, we can easily skip from one word to the next, from one phrase to the next, and, and miss, I think, a great deal of what maybe God is trying to say to us there. This phrase, now after the death of, is found elsewhere only in Joshua 1.1, Judges 1.1, and 2 Samuel 1.1, to describe the death of Moses, Joshua, and King Saul. And when we, think in death, when we think of death in those terms, with those kind of names, we realize something of an era has come to an end. Think about that for a moment. When Moses died, Moses who led the people out of Egypt, Moses who led the people for 40 years through the, Mos- through the wilderness, Moses who led the people right to the edge of the land of Canaan. And then think of Joshua. Joshua, the mighty military leader who who led the people throughout the land of Canaan, conquering it so that they might live in it. And and then think about um, uh, uh, Saul, who was the first king of Israel. And when he died, Israel was scattered. We might think, wow, what's going to happen now? This is the end of an era. What will we ever do without Moses? What will we ever do without Joshua? What will we ever do without Saul? And then what will we ever do without Abraham? The point that I'm making is simply this. God's faithfulness does not hinge on a person. It does not hinge on you or I. However significant the person might be, God's promises do not come to an end with a funeral. God's kingdom does not collapse, not even when death takes one of his most useful servants. The kingdom of God continues, though his servants die. This point should not be lost on you or I. Think about this for a second. Your help is in the name of the Lord, not in the name of blank. Fill in the name of any human being that you rely on and that you gain strength from. Fill their name in that blank. See, for a moment, let's just remove from this phrase, now after the death of, from the realm of superstars and bring it down to your life and to my life. God's care of your family of your spouse, of your belongings, does not depend upon you. Loved ones, God is eternal. God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Ruth, of, of, of Rebecca, of Esther, of, of Calvin, of put any name you want in there. God is the God of the living. On down through the line. God will look after your spouse. God will look after your children. God will look after your family. God will look after your friends, saved and unsaved. As he walked with you and as he cared for you and as he protected you and even as he drew you to himself, so he will do after you die with your loved ones, saved and unsaved. Your death does not end the work of God. 
in the life of your family and friends. I know this can be humbling, but I mean it to be a source of great comfort and encouragement and rest to each of us. Because listen to exactly the next phrase after that one that we're looking at. After the death of Abraham, what? God blessed Isaac, his son. You see what that's saying? It's saying that God's promise, as they've said, didn't end with Abraham. He continued to bless Abraham's offspring. Our God is eternal. Our God is the most high God, the maker of heavens and earth. Our God is El Shaddai, the Almighty. Nothing is impossible for him. And so even in an obituary, even in a genealogy, we can see and find evidence of the faithfulness and the care and the sustenance of God in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we reflect on these words and on your word to us today, I pray, Father, that you would satisfy us with your word, that you would encourage us with your word, that you would satisfy us even now in these early hours of this day with reminders that you are a God of steadfast love. You are a God of promise. You are a God of care. And then as we fall asleep tonight, as we're thinking about the day, may we look for evidence of your faithfulness. Father, thank you for your care over our lives, even when we have to dig a little bit to find it. Thank you for the reminder, Father, that when we die, we can have life through Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we know that when we die, we will not cease to exist, but rather we will enter into heaven to be with you forever, awaiting the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you, Father, that your care and your love and your protection of my family is not dependent upon me. It's dependent upon you. Help us, I pray, to think these through things through correctly in light of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.